Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words you have torn in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring, our offspring's offspring, and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Amen. So let's turn to the book of Kohelet. And we will begin reading in chapter 9. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read from chapter 9, uh, verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 10. But, but I'm just going to tell you ahead of time, we're not, we're not going to get out of 9. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm just I'm letting you know, forewarned here. So um, uh, Kohelet 9 and verse 4 says, For he who is attached to all the living has hope. A live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing at all. There is no more reward for them. Okay, there's no more reward for them. Nor Their money is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have already perished. Nor will they ever again have a share in whatever is done beneath the sun. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a glad heart. For God has already approved your deeds. Let your garments always be white, your head never lack oil. Enjoy life with the wife you love through all the fleeting days of your life that he has granted you beneath the sun, all of your futile existence, for this is your compensation in life and your toil which you exert beneath the sun. Whatever you are able to do with your might, do, or, excuse me, whatever you are able to do, do it with all your might. For there is neither doing, nor reckoning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you are going. My friends, we only have one life. And we've got to put every, we've got to put our shoulder into it. We've got to have that Rocky Balboa. I'm about ready to have a Rocky Balboa movie night, but I'm, that's beside the point. You've got to have a Rocky Balboa attitude because you only have one life to live and you've got to, you need to take advantage of it. You, you were sent here for a mission and don't get distracted by not using your talents. I mentioned that Mikael and Amet and I were talking about dreams, where, and it had to do in this conversation about where we'd like to go film and on location. Uh, you know what? We only have one life, gentlemen. We need to make that happen. You know, We don't want to get to the end of our days and say, well, we could have, should have, would have. Once more I saw under the sun that the race is not won by the swift nor the battle by the strong, nor does bread come to the wise, riches to the intelligent, nor favor to the learned, but time and death happen to them all. For man does not even know his hour, like fish caught in the fatal net, like birds seized in a snare, sore men caught in the moment of disaster when it falls upon them suddenly. This too I have observed about wisdom beneath the sun, and it affected me profoundly." There was a small town with only a few inhabitants, and a mighty king came over it and surrounded it and built a siege work around it. Present in the city was a poor wise man who by his wisdom saved the town, yet no one, no one remembered the poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than might, although a poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words go unheeded. The gentle words of the wise are heard above the shouts of a king over fools, and wisdom is better than weapons. But a single road can ruin a great deal of good. The rabbis talk about that single road being alluded to there is Achan. 
in the camp of Israel. A single rogue can ruin the good. This is why, my friends, that in modern theology, theology is very much about you, about me. It's very selfish. In fact, when you listen to modern praise and worship music songs and you, you listen to the lyrics, you'll notice that in those lyrics is I, me, I, I, me, I. Whereas in Judaism, the prayers are us and we. And it's dangerous. When you say, well, doesn't your faith need to be personal? Of course it does. It needs to be personal. absolutely does. It also needs to be corporate. But the danger of being me-focused and I-focused is that we think it's all about us. And the reality is, is that our teshuva, your, your teshuva and my teshuva that we're doing right now and that we will continue to do and will do on Yom Kippur to a great extent, obviously, and then beyond that, we'll continue to do teshuva. It's not just about us. It's about our community. It's about our families. It's about our role in the world. This is why all of us are tempted by sin. And sometimes those temptations can be very, very strong. And one of the strongest weapons you have against those temptations is to recognize that your fall affects not just you, but it affects your family, it affects your community, it affects your world, and it affects hundreds if not thousands of lives you don't even know about. We get into chapter 10 and verse 1, it says, Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's oil. A little, little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A man's mind tends to his right, while a fool's mind tends to his left. Even on the road as fools walks, he lacks sense and proclaims to all that he's a fool. If the anger of a ruler flares up against you, do not leave your place, for deference appeases great offenses. There is an evil which I have observed beneath the sun. If I were an error proceeding from the ruler, folly is placed on lofty heights, while rich men sit in low places." I have seen slaves on horses and nobles walking on foots like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it. He who breaks down a wall will be bitten by a snake. And he who moves about stones will be hurt by them, and he who splits logs will be endangered by them. If an axe is blunt and one not hone the edge, nevertheless it strengthens the warrior. Wisdom is more powerful than skill. If the snake bites because it was not charmed, then there is no advantage to the charmer's art. The words of a wise man win favor, but a fool's lips devour him. He, his talk begins as foolishness and ends as evil madness. The fool prates on and on, but man does not know what will be and who can tell what will happen after him. The toil of fools exhausts them as one who does not know the way to a town. Woe to you, O land, whose king acts as an adolescent and whose minister dine in the morning. Happy are you, O land, whose king is a man of dignity, and whose minister is designed at the proper time, in strength and not in drunkenness. Through slothfulness, the ceiling sags, and through idleness of the hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, but money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse a king, and in your bedchamber do not curse the rich. For a bird of the sky may carry the sound, and some winged creature may betray the matter. Wow, it's a lot there. So much, but as I said, we're not going to get out of chapter 9. It's a forewarn. So I want to go back to chapter 9. 
to verses uh, 4, where it says, A living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, this is an important verse because as people get into Judaism, there are Kabbalistic thoughts, not Kabbalah is not the wicked, evil um, witch that most people think it is. It's, there's, it's, it's not what people think very often. But there are some Kabbalistic ideas that are not, they're not, are not a scriptural. They don't really come from Jewish Kabbalah. They actually come from Eastern mysticism. And one of those ideas is reincarnation. I have said many times to former messianics who kind of got into Kabbalistic ideas that there's no such thing as reincarnation and that the Bible actually, it's not just the Bible teaches against it, Jewish literature teaches against it. And some have scoffed at me and said, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and they, they don't understand because they don't study Jewish literature. They just, they get on Kabbalah.com and they read something and then they take it for gospel. And next thing you know, they're off in the weeds uh, talking about reincarnation, something they know nothing about, which doesn't exist. But here, and how many of you would agree that King Solomon was the wisest man who ever walked to earth, right? Wisest man. You don't say Yeshua because Yeshua is divine. I'm talking about man, a human being. The wisest human being who ever walked the earth was, was Solomon. And King Solomon is telling us that you, whatever you're going to get done, get done now because there's not another chance. There's no reincarnation. That takes the reincarnation off the mat. If, re if there's such thing as reincarnation, then what he's saying is not true. He should say, do what you got to do now because there might be a chance, but, but maybe not. That's what he would say, but that's not what he says. Now, you might be asking yourself, Rabbi, why are you um, so on top of this? Well, first of all, because it leads people astray. But second of all, it also presents a false hope. It presents a false hope that there's something after the grave that you can come back and do. And that's a lie. The reincarnation idea also comes about because we can't explain everything. Like, why does a little baby die? We don't, we don't know these evils. We, don't ex, we can't explain every little evil. And so reincarnation theory comes along and says, well, the reason the baby dies, it has to make atonement for something it didn't do in a previous life. That's garbage. That's, there's nowhere, that's not in the Bible, it's not in Jewish literature. The reason evil exists in the world and bad things happen like that is because we ate something we weren't supposed to eat in the garden. That's the answer. It's no, it's, see, we, don't like, we like to take the responsibility off of ourselves and put it on something else. The reason there's evil in the world is because we disobey God's commandments. It's really that simple. It's no more complicated than that. And the way to change things is to come back into God's ways. That's the way we change things. That's how we bring the Mashiach. So it says to this verse, uh, chapter 9 and verse 4, it says, For to him that is joined to all the living there is hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Mayam Loez brings down that the Kohelet comes to praise this life where perfection of the soul can be attained through penance and good works. There is no hope where even the least bit of life remains to link, or excuse me, there is hope, excuse me, there is hope where even the least bit of life remains to link oneself to other living creatures. So in other words, while you have life, even the least bit of life, even on your deathbed, 
where life is ebbing away. Where there's a little bit of life, there is chance for teshuva. But after that, no. The moral of the story to us should be obvious that we should use every effort of life. Let's not wait till we're gasping for breath on our deathbed to hopefully make teshuva if there is a deathbed. Because some people's death is sudden and there's no lingering illness. So he says here, the least worthy of men, so long as he lives, can acquire some excellence, while a dead lion, a, a, a Taurus scholar who died, has nothing else. He achieves nothing else, Ma'am Loez says. So we have to use this opportunity. The other good news about this is while you're still breathing, you're still in the game. While you're still breathing, you say, well, I've, I've just come to this knowledge and I'm advanced in years, whatever that means to you. <laughs> My daughters think I'm really advanced in years. I don't think so. I feel great. <laughs> but whatever that means to you, if you're still alive, you still have a chance to fulfill your mission. Ma'am Loez also says the mortal existence has has no value, however, when it is a matter of seeking pleasure. As he says, then I praise the dead who have already died over the living, whom, can, whom yet continue to live. If our life is nothing but a seeking of pleasure, that's the other problem with people that always want relevant, quote, relevant messages. You know what, that, that's really code. A relevant message is a code word for don't make me uncomfortable. I want a relevant message. That's code for don't tell me i got to do anything different than I'm already doing. I want you to make my present life A-OK in the USA. Tell me how my present life fits in the God system. I want you to mold the Bible to my life. I want you to hear, and I'll take it a step further and make you, everybody else feel even more uncomfortable. I want you to mold true theology to my theology. Because I believed it for a lot of years, you see. And sometimes our fake theology can be addicting, can be addictive, right? It can be nostalgic, like Christmas. A lot of people have good memories from Christmas. I'm sure a lot of the pagans that came into the synagogues in the first century and converted had a lot of good memories from their Thor festivals. Don't look at me like, what? That's so crazy. <laughs> hey, look, I have a lot of good memories going to ponchos. <laughs> I like ponchos. Listen, if I could wave a magic kosher wand and make any restaurant kosher, I'd make every ponchos kosher. <laughs> I had, back in the day, I had a very high standard for eating. <laughs> I know, know y'all think that's crazy, but it's true. And my wife knows it's true, that's why. <laughs> I like ponchos, but, and I have fond memories of there. I would never eat there again, unless it's kosher. You see what I'm saying? So again, if in case we didn't make this point clear, there's no reincarnation. I just want, I don't want... False theologies and evil theologies like reincarnation to suck the spiritual life out of you. Because the enemy is always trying to get us to relax. 
make you think you have another shot. There's only one shot. We only get one chance. We get one chance. That's it. So it says in, uh, in, in, the, in the chapter 5 and 6, it's, excuse me, verses 5 and 6, it says, For the living know that they will die, and the dead know nothing, and they no longer have reward. I'm sorry. Ma'am Loez just said something. That is, he said, wait a minute. The dead no longer have reward. For their memory is forgotten, as well as their love, their hatred, their envy. They've already perished. Neither have they any more share in the world. All things done beneath the sun. In other words, according to Mayam Loez, it's over. Once you hit the grave, that's it. Next thing after the grave is the judgment, and after that, Bezrat Hashem, is life in the world to come. There's no chance. You don't get, I was never a general in Napoleon's army. Many of you think I was. I did not fight at Waterloo. Had I fought at Waterloo, we would have won. <laughs> Ma'am Loez brings down this thought. The living know that they will die. These are the righteous who in death are called the living, according to the Talmud. They know that, that they will die and in anticipation of their day of death, stay away from sin. If you're wise... You've got that on your radar. If you're a fool, then you you say, "Oh, Rabbi, I stopped talking about. I don't want. I don't want to talk about. I don't want to talk about. I don't want to talk about." That's a foolish person. I don't. Doesn't mean you have to just you know sit in your living room with a coffin in front of you. But if you keep in mind that we are mortal men and we only have one chance. You've got to get up and make it. You've got to get up and be strong about it. It says the dead know nothing. That is, these are the wicked who in life are called dead. For they pretend as if they know nothing about death and as a result commit transgressions. Kohelet, he writes, has therefore explained why it is good to be joined to the righteous who are called the living. Why is it good to be in a congregation like this? Because you want to be around the living. Not out there around the dead. The people that are out there pretending like there's, there's no God. The people that are out there pretending like there's no afterlife. The people out there are living for the world. Those, that's the dead. You want to walk around a cemetery, you don't have to go to a piece of ground. You just go out there to the world where people are living that way. Then you're walking in a, in a living cemetery. You want to be in the congregation around people who are living this life, my friends, is so short. I mean, I hope everybody lives to be 120. Amen. Tom's almost there. <laughs> I hope everybody lives that long. But even if you live to be 120, what's that compared to 5,780? Where I really want to see you is I want to see you in my neighborhood in Shemayim. While I'm walking Abigail, I want to say, <laughs> Boker Tov, Amit. Of course, we won't be able to look at each other because we'll be so bright. Y'all can laugh at that, it's okay. So he says, conscious of death as the inevitable, they live. See, this is, the, this is the, quite the reverse of human thinking. When you are conscious of the fact that you are mortal, 
that's when you can truly live. When you're conscious of the fact that one day you're going to die, that's when you begin to live. Because that's when you take hold and say, you know what, I don't have a lot of time to waste. I need to study. I need to read. I need to, I need to, to do. Because I'm, I don't know how long I'm going to have to use these skills that God has given me. So conscious of death, they, they live, they exert themselves, it says here in the study of Torah, and they keep the commandments, making themselves desirable company. I love the way that Ma'am Loez brought that down. Desirable company. If you want to be around people that are, are desirable to be around, you want to be around Torah people. Torah is life. This is what this is saying, by the way. They exert themselves, conscious of, of this, they exert themselves, making themselves desirable company. To live is Torah. That is, in fact, abundant life. Ma'am Loez, or excuse me, the Kohelet goes on to say, eat your bread. Now, I love what the art skull brings down from some of the sources about this verse. Go eat your bread with joy. Al-Shish stresses the possessive nouns, your bread, your wine. He writes, true happiness is present when you eat your own bread. The bread you toiled for with the sweat of your own brow. Referencing Psalm 128, verse 2. In other words, where somebody is truly happy is where they have worked and they have put forth an effort and they are now enjoying their bread and their wine. There's nothing more, you know, uh, fulfilling than that. You know, it's one thing to say, well, somebody gave me this television. That's nice, and we enjoy those gifts. But there's something exponentially more when we know that we worked hard and saved up our money, and now we were able to purchase this TV or whatever. It doesn't have to be a television. It could be anything. It could be a car. It could be purses. Somebody said purses back there. I'm not sure if that was a... Uh, a Freudian, like, you know, kind of like a message over here, but whatever we're striving for, we got to eat our own stuff. That's what it's saying here, that there is an ethic in Judaism to work. And to, <laughs> amen. And to earn a living. And you feel good about it. You feel like, hey, I've done something productive today. He says, even when it's not, even when it's only bread, that is, the basic necessities of life rather than luxuries. Similarly, he writes, your wine should be drunk, belev tov, with a glad heart, at the behest of yetzer tov, of the good inclination, and the performance of commandments. So when we drink wine and so forth, we should enjoy it at Kiddush and Chavdala and Yom Tov and the Shabbat, the four cups of Pesach. In other words, our wine that we drink as Jews isn't necessarily, we don't go to the bar and drink the wine. We go to the, the festival and drink the wine, is what he's saying. Eat your bread. Now, Ma'am Loez has a, a wonderful insight here. He says, when God is properly served, the bread and the wine are blessed as it is written, and you will serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. In fact, if we go back to the art scroll, I meant to read something else here about that particular insight. They bring down this statement. 
that this verse refers to the period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That this verse is about this time frame we're in right now. Why? Because it says, On Yom Kippur we all fast, and God forgives our sins. And the Midrash says, A heavenly voice proclaims, Now go after your fast, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with joy, because your prayers have been answered. This is what it means when it says he approves our deeds. When we're living for God and following him, he says, You know what? Enjoy your life, because your deeds are approving your sustenance. So it says, Kohelet says here, for God has already approved your deeds. That is, since you're serving him, you can eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a glad heart. In the future, God will say to each Zodiac, now listen to this beautiful reward. This is rather long, this statement here, but it's so good. How many of you know that, that we read, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has in store for those right, who love him? Well, listen to this. In the future, God will say to each and every Zodic, by the way, you're a Zodic. Amen. You say, look, I, what do you mean I'm a Zodic? I don't know much. Let me tell you something. And those who are watching, this pertains to all of us, those who are watching as well. If you have said in your heart in the last five minutes or five days or whatever time period, if you've said, if you've heard the message of truth and you said, you know what? I need to do better. You're exotic, according to the sages. The moment you say, you're walking by, this is how they put it. A man walks by and he hears the Jews praying Minka and he says to himself, I need to be a better man. I need to pray Minka like that. Boom, he's exotic. You say, well, I thought to be exotic, you had to just, you know, know everything, had to carry all your books down the hallway and know them all by heart. <laughs> no. Exotic is someone who says, God, I want you. So when it says here, exotic, don't think that that's only reserved for the elite. So it says here, he'll say to the Zadok, go eat your bread with, with joy, having given bread to the poor, and drink wine stored in the Garden of Eden as your reward for having served wine to the poor. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi said, two gates of, of precious stones are in the Garden of Eden, and 10,000 ministering angels are upon those gates, each brilliant as the gleam of a luminous sky. Where does the pearly gates come from? Judaism. It says, as soon as Azadik approaches, they remove the clothes that he had on in the grave, and they dress him in eight garments that are all clouds of glory. They place two crowns on his head. We'll cast our crowns at his feet. Where does that come from? Judaism. They put two crowns on his head. One is made of all of precious stones, and the other is made of purifying gold. And they acclaim him the words, go eat your bread with joy. Then they bring him to a place of rivers that surround with 800 varieties of roses and where every Zodic sits under his own canopy, his own sukkah, according to his stature. From each canopy, four rivers extend, one of milk, one of wine, one of persimmons, and one of honey. And above every canopy hangs a vine of gold studded with 30 pearls. Each is bright as the shine of Noah. 
There is a table of precious stones and pearls under the canopy, and 60 angels stand at the head of every Zodok, and they say to him, Go and eat your joy, the joy which is your honey. That means the laws of Torah are likened to honey, as it says, The ordinances of the Lord are more sweet to me than honey, honey of the honeycomb, Psalm 19, 10, 11. And drink wine preserved in its grapes since the creation. That is, the wine that we'll drink will be the wine that is taken from the vineyard of Ganadin on the days of creation. That's a really fine wine, by the way. That's from the year zero. (laughs) For you have occupied, now this is why. Why? Because you have occupied yourself with Torah that is likened to wine. Abide in me and I'll abide in you. That's what, the, that's what Yeshua said, right? So this is our reward. Ma'am Loez goes, goes on to say, Another interpretation declares, If you fear God, do not fear that perhaps sin has deprived you of the hereafter and you are abandoned. Go, eat your bread with joy in the world to come, and with a glad heart drink your wine. That is, study Torah and perform mitzvot. The bread is Torah, the wine is mitzvot. For God has already approved your deeds. And I love what Ma'am Loez says here. He says, today is for action and tomorrow is for receiving reward. Today is this life. Tomorrow is the world to come. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Today is for action. Tomorrow is for receiving reward. People are looking for pleasure in this life and we've got it backwards. Pleasure is in for the next life. That's when we get to sit under our canopy and enjoy our wine and our pearls and our purses. I mean, in our uh, <laughs> gold vines. But today is for action. Today is for doing. Today we have to respond to God. He says in verse 8, let your garments always be white. This means that we need to spend all of our days living a life of teshuva. It is true that we are in the season of teshuva right now. That's an absolute reality. Been so since Elul 1. It intensifies at Rosh Hashanah. And it's illustrated by the fact, as the Hazan said, we have different things that are inserted into the prayers. Nevertheless, we should never come to the idea that there's a once and for all teshuva season. This has been the downfall of many people theologically. I confessed the Lord 45 years ago. Yeah, but what did you do yesterday? What have you done this morning? Well, I was born again way back when. You know, in, in the Jewish mind, people were born again daily. As I said in the Aliyah, that Yeshua, when he went to see Yochanan the Immerser to get mikvah in the Jordan, that was a born-again experience from a Jewish perspective. But he was, what, 30-ish, 30s? By tradition, we say he died at 33. We don't really know, but 30-something. He had already been to the mikvah probably scores of times before he ever went to to the Jordan. And after the Jordan, he visited the mikvah scores more times. And so the idea that we just, we have this once a year teshuva, and that's all we do, or once in a lifetime teshuva, is absurd. 
and has no basis biblically or in the, or in the idea of Jewish thought. It's very important. The idea brought down by Kohelet is that we need to wear our white garments all the time. It says, he writes, I'm, I'm in Mayam Loez all day today, so he's just got so many good things to say. But here's what he says. Here's what Mayam Loez says. The symbolic meaning of these words derives from their literal reference. White garments are customarily worn on Rosh Hashanah and also Yom Kippur to remind us of the day of death. It was also the practice to pour oil on the head of the deceased who were dressed in white. So therefore, Kohelik is saying, not only should you wear white literally on the days of awe and after your death, but every day of your life, let your garments be white. And not only be, anoint and, and not only be anointed with oil after your death, but throughout your life, let your head never lack oil. That is Torah. We need to spend every day of our life dressed in white garments. Not necessarily literally. We literally dress in white on Rosh Hashanah, and then we dress in all white on Yom Kippur, and we have white here, and we'll have even more white when you come here on Rosh Hashanah, at least plants anyway. But we need to be in white every day of our life. The rabbis talk and say that when you're wearing a, guy, a, a white garment, typically you're more cautious because if you're eating something, you never eat tomato soup wearing a white shirt. Or spaghetti. Because it will get on you. <laughs> spaghetti is the Yetzer Hara. <laughs> so when you're wearing white, you're extra careful not to get, because it just, it just picks up everything. So the rabbis bring down, that's how we should live our life. Considering that we have spiritual white garments on, and we have to be careful of sin. He writes, white garments are an allusion to repentance as it says, Behold, I cause your iniquity to pass from you and I will clothe you in white robes, Zechariah 3, 4. And let your head never lack oil. It alludes to a good name which is better than precious oil. Rabbi Eliezer said, Return one day before your death. When his disciples objected that a man never knows what day he's going to die. Rabbi, you say make teshuva before your death, but we, never, we don't know when we're going to die. And he said, therefore, you should live every day as if you're going to die, making teshuva every single day. I know sometimes when I'm, I know it has to be the case when Menashe and I are teaching the guys downtown. Uh, it seems like every time I have a class, teshuva is the subject. And I'm sure these guys, they probably think, and we've talked about it in class, but I'm sure sometimes they probably think, is that all Jews are about? Or is this just a topic because of where we are? And I let them know, first of all, that is all we talk about. And number two, it doesn't matter if you're in physical jail or not. We all make teshuva. Every single Jew making needs to make teshuva every single day. You say, what about the great Rabbi Zadok? Even more. Even more. The great rabbis we've ever known, the Moshe's, the Aaron's, the Kephas, the Yaakov's, the Rashi's, the Rambam's, the Rambans need to make more tshuva than the Jew who sits in the pew. It's the reverse of what we think very often. It's the reverse. We think that once we get to a level 
They will not have a big struggle with the Yetzirah. No. The higher you get on the heavyweight champion boxer, the bigger the opponent they send you. Otherwise, it would be a joke. So it says, Rabbi Yochanan Menzaki said, The matter may be likened to the story of a monarch. This is a great parable. It may be likened to the story of a monarch who lived, who invited, rather, all his servants to a feast, but, but did not inform them of the time. The wise ones among them dressed up in finery and waited at the, at the gate of the palace. They said, nothing is unprepared in the palace of the king, and the feast can therefore take place at, at a moment's notice. The foolish among them ignored the words of the king, went off to do their work, the plasterer to his paint, the jug maker to his clay, the smith to his anvil, the laundryman to his post. And they said, can there be a feast without preparation? When the time arrives, we'll know it. You know, because we, we went to the conference, right? We went to the end times conference. We'll know. We got the book, right? And yeah, the Shemitah, we got it. So we know. We know now when it's going to happen. Then suddenly the king summoned his servants, and those who were wise came into his presence elegantly attired. The foolish ones arrived full of grime and soiled the palatial chamber. The king was delighted with the wise servants, and he was angry with the others. Those who came properly attired for the feast, he said, shall sit down and eat and drink, and those that did not come dressed for the occasion shall stand and look upon. And these who are eating, and there are those who are starving, these who are drinking, and others who are parched and thirsty. So says the Lord, Behold, my servant will eat, and you will be hungry. My servant will drink, and you will be thirsty. Isaiah 65, 13. The Jewish people are his servants, and the nations ignore his commands. Isn't that true? We, talk about, we often talk about the, the foolishness of the Messianic Gentile theology, which those people are being taught and trained to ignore the commands. Said Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaki, if the scripture is speaking of white garments, see how every white garment... See how every nation, rather, has many white garments. So the Scripture is not talking about literal white garments. The Scripture is talking here about spiritual white garments. Now, I want to couple this back to what Messiah Yeshua taught in Matthew chapter 22. Because he also taught a parable about a wedding festival. It sounds very similar to what we just read. Chapter 22 of the book of Matthew, beginning in verse 1. Yeshua continued speaking to them in parables, and he remarked, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king of flesh and blood who made a wedding celebration for his son. He sent his servants to summon those invited to the wedding celebration, but they did not want to come. He continued sending other servants, saying, Say to those who are invited, Look, I prepared my feast. My oxen and fatted animals have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding celebration. But they did not pay attention to this and went their own way, one to his field, another to his business. And the rest seized the servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king became enraged, sent his legions and destroyed those murderers and burned down their towns and fires. Then he said to his servants, See, the wedding celebration is prepared, but the ones invited were not fitting for it. Now please go into the roads and the crossings and invite everyone you find to the wedding celebration. 
Those servants went out to the roads and took in everyone they found, some bad and some good. And the wedding house was filled with dinner guests. When the king came to see the dinner guests, he saw a man among them who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, My friend, why did you come here without wedding clothes? But he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Tie his hands and feet, carry him out, and throw him into outer darkness, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And verse 14 says, For many are called, but few are chosen. Now that's a very interesting verse, isn't it? Many are called, and few are chosen. My grandmother, when I was a little boy, gave me a Bible. And it always stuck with me that in that Bible she wrote in the first page, many are called, but few are chosen. Little would I know what kind of prophetic word that would have so many years later. Because what Yeshua is doing is he's, he's hearkening back to this very similar parable, and the wedding clothes are the garments of Torah. Because many are called, or few and chosen, refers back to the Exodus. I want you to turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 105. Some of you know, because I've taught it, that there was only 20% of the Jews that came out of Egypt during the Exodus. The rest perished or were assimilated and became idolaters. Many people think that everybody came out of Egypt. No, just many were called, but few were chosen. Many were called out, but only a few were chosen. What does it mean to be chosen? We read in Psalm 105, we it's a long psalm. We're not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time. But we, the whole psalm is about God's deliverance from the patriarchs to Joseph all the way to Egypt. And verse 43 says, he brought, us, he brought out his people with rejoicing, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This is the same word in Hebrew that is used there in Matthew chapter 22. The very same word. Many are called, but few are chosen. He called us out of Egypt but only a, a select few of us actually heard the call and came, and those were the chosen ones. So the question becomes, what are we chosen to do? Why are we chosen? And the answer goes to, to the book of Exodus chapter 19. This is what God says that we're chosen for, Exodus chapter 19. God never changes, right? Right. Verses 3 through 6. Then Moses went up to God, and Hashem said to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob. That's the women. And what you're to tell the people of Israel. He addressed the women first. Why? Because they're the most spiritual, and they're equipped with the right tools, spiritual and otherwise, to get the men to do what they're supposed to do. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on wings of eagles and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my commandments, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession, although the whole world is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to Israel. It is conditional. Many, many people like to run around and say, I'm the chosen of the Lord. That's how they say it too. I'm the chosen of the Lord. Are you following his Torah? No, you're not chosen. That's the, that's the stipulation. 
If you're the chosen of the Lord, it's because you're following His Torah, and as a result of that, He chooses you to be a kingdom of priests. But if we're not following His commandments, then we don't get to be part of the, part of the group. Suppose you were going to join a, a club. And the club had all kind of rules. They have dues to pay and rules to abide by. And you run around town telling everybody you're a member of that club. But you haven't paid any dues. You don't follow any rules and they never see you. That's called delusion. Now there's another interpretation. I got two more things I want to get to and then we'll be out of here and y'all can go enjoy some Monet. couple more things here about white garments. There is another interpretation that these, re- these refer to tzitzit and tefillin. It says, at the time, or excuse me, at all times, yet let your garments be white. These are the tzitzit, the fringes that are worn as prescribed by the Torah. And let your head never lack oil. This is the tefillin, the phylacteries. Both give Israel a good name, as it says, and your peoples of the earth will see the name of the Lord is called upon you, and they will be afraid of you, Deuteronomy 28.10, which Rabbi Eliezer the Great has identified as referring to phylacteries on the head of the people. It's not the peace in your eyes that they're going to see. You know, I was watching, speaking of that, we have to wear godly garments, and that's how God uses those garments to draw us or draw people to us. I was watching a, uh, I, I, I watched these security videos, you know, where they, they teach about self-defense and security and all this kind of stuff. And so this guy goes into a gas station, and he's holding the place up, and he ties up the gas station attendant. And so while he's in the process of doing this, somebody else comes, he sees that somebody's coming to the door. Well, the person that's coming to the door is a really close friend of the gas station attendant, and she was just coming by to t- see how her friend was doing. So the guy greets her at the door, opens the door, and she sees it, a cross around his neck. And she says, oh, I see you've got a cross around your neck. Are you a Christian? And she gives him a hug. While he's hugging her, he picks her up and throws her in the back and ties her up too. And proceeds to rob the place and sets both of them on fire. Now, they make it. They have injuries, but they made it. But he literally sprayed lighter fluid on them and lit them on fire. He was wearing a cross while he was doing it. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. We have to look for godly garments. A lot of times we're looking for fish symbols. That's the guy, the reason you're seeing because he just cut you off. I know. What makes humor funny is that it has, <laughs> it's real. It's true. All right, a couple more things here. Enjoy life with the wife you've loved all the days of your futile life that he has given you. This is verse 9. That he has given you beneath the sun all the days of your, of your chevel, 
For that is your portion in life, all your toil which you toil beneath the sun. So it says, at all times let your garments be, be white, Koheleth urged, and let your head never lack oil. It says, however, this state of purity cannot be realized unless a man has found joy in life with a wife that he loves and does not lust, therefore, after other women. The art school, humos, or the art, yeah, the art school commentary rather, says, only if he enjoys life with his own wife it does not stray after strange women. And a man who has no wife lives without good, help, joy, blessing, and atonement. He lives without peace as well, and lives without life, as it is written, enjoy life with the wife of, of your, that you love, from the Midrash. Incidentally, it's incumbent upon the man to find a wife, not the woman to find a husband. The mitzvah is to the man. That's why the man proposes to the woman, not the other way around. Because it's incumbent upon the man to find a, a woman. King Solomon, Ma'am Luez says, has already extolled the details and virtues possessed by the woman the wife of favor, the wife of valor. Proverbs 31. Who shall find her? He asked. For not all have great enough merit to deserve such a wife. Rubies are rare, and they're found in faraway places, and one has to dig for them and mine for them. See life, he writes, means having a craft, it says in the Talmud. If a man wants to see life when he's married, let him acquire a vocation, a skill that will provide for his livelihood. For there is no peace in the home when there is lack. Our sages have said, when barley is missing from the hamper, discord begins to come near. He makes your brother, he borders peace, says the scripture, when he gives you in plenty the fat of the wheat. Psalm 147, 14. Material blessing comes only on account of one's wife. In the manner of, and he dealt well with Abram for her sake. Genesis 12, 16. Thus Rava said to the people of Maxuza, Honor your wives that you may become wealthy. And when a man marries with the proper motives, the scripture says of him, Blessed are you in the city, and blessed are you in the field. Deuteronomy 28, 3. Now I'm going to conclude with a story. It's a long story, but I'm going to shorten it for the woman of valor. There were three Jewish men. One was seeking a good job so he could become wealthy. Another man was seeking to become a great scholar. And another man was looking for a modest wife. Neither, neither of them, none of them, had had success. And they began to cry out and ask Hashem and weep. And so Elijah heard their prayers and he went to the Holy One, blessed be he, and said, Father, do you not see that these Jews weep? One wants a good job. One wants to be a Torah scholar. One wants a good wife. And the Holy One, blessed be he, said, they're not worthy. Go and test them. So Elijah went to them and disguised himself as an elderly man. To the one who wanted wealth, he said, take this coin. I'm shortening the story. There's a lot of good points here, but I'm shortening it down. He gave them a, a, a gold coin. He said, if you take this gold coin and you use it for tzedakah, you become a wealthy man. So he took the gold coin. He became a wealthy man and gave tzedakah. Then he went to the man who wanted to be a scholar, and he gave him the alphabet, the aleph bait. He said, if you learn the olive bait, then God will anoint you and you'll become a great scholar. And so he did. And he went to the other man and he blessed him. He said, he should find a, a, godly, a godly and modest wife. And so he found a godly and modest wife. 
He went later, many years later, to the one who became wealthy, and he took with him a bunch of orphans, and he disguised himself as a pauper. And he went to the man, and he said, we've come, that, and we were on the road, and we were, we were attacked by robbers, and they took everything we have. We have no place to stay, and we have nothing to eat. Please take us in. And his servant went to the master and told him what it was, and he said, well, how many of them are there? And he said, there are six of them. And he said, well, just give each a loaf of bread and send them on their way. But Elijah and the children refused to leave, and so when they refused to leave, the master came down and beat them and caused them to leave. Elijah returned and said, do you recognize me? And he said, no, I do not. He said, I'm the old man who told you that if you have the gold coin, that you would become a successful man. But you took it, became wealthy, and became a greedy person. Give me back my gold coin. So the man gave him the gold coin, and instantly the man became a pauper. He went later with children to the man who became a wise scholar and said that these children have come to learn and I have to go away on a journey and I want to leave them in your care that they should learn from your great wisdom. However, they have no books and you will need to provide them some of your books. And the man said, you dare to bring students to my school and they don't even come prepared with books away from them. I have no time for these children. Elijah came back and said, do you recognize me? He said, I do not. He said, I'm the old man who gave you the olive bait and said, if you study it, that you'd become a diligent scholar. And you took your knowledge and became a, a puffed up and haughty. Give me back the olive bait. He gave him back the olive bait, and the man instantly forgot his learning. So to the third man, he went. And, the, and he said, Elijah came to the city where the man wanted to marry a good wife. And he approached her home and he knocked. And the woman came to the door and she asked him, what do you want? And he said, I am starving. Maybe you have some bread to eat. The woman brought him into the house with great honor. She gave him bread and water. He sat down and ate. And then he said, maybe you have something else. Bring me something else. Later, he told her that he had had no place to sleep. She gave him a place and pillows and covers and she waited outside until her husband came home. When he came home, she said to him, an old man has come to us, and he was lost in the desert for several days. He was starving, so I gave him bread and water. Please do not be angry with me, but there is nothing left for you. You have done well, he said. I will go to the market, and I'll buy some bread, and I'll buy some more water. Wait, she said to her husband. I have one more request of you. He's an old man with a very nice face. We have one calf. Slaughter it, and he will make We'll make a good meal for him. The husband said, we only have one calf, and you want to slaughter it? And she said, for the sake of God, please do it. So he did so, and they ate and drank. And afterwards, Elijah asked the man if he recognized him, and he said, I, I do not. He said, I'm the, the old man who appeared to you and your two friends. I have since found out that they are not worthy, but you, you are worthy on account of your wife. I will give you wealth and wisdom as well. Take this gold coin and take this olive bait. It is all in the merit of your wife who was a woman of valor. So thank God for the women of valor in our lives who make so much of what we do possible in the kingdom of heaven. And we say, Baruch haba Bashem Adonai. 